It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I am Tony Vernetti from Feds, Federal Employee Defense Services, and today is Friday, September 7th. We have a great show for you today. This is our annual show where we invite the good folks from the EEOC's Federal Sector Division to talk about the EEOC's outreach and training that they provide to the specifically to the federal community. And I'm excited and delighted to have in studio with me Dexter Brooks and Tim Bladick from the EOC's Office of Federal Operations. Dexter, of course, is the Associate Director of the Office of Federal Operations. Good morning, Dexter. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Tony. Glad to be back. And Tim is a senior attorney. Say senior, makes you you sound more distinguished than old. (laughs) In the Training and Outreach Division within OFO. And he's here to tell us specifically about the EOC's upcoming Executive Leadership Training um, that's going to be later in last week in October in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, good morning, Tim. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Tony. My pleasure. I should also let our listeners know that a little bit later in the show, we're going to um, we're pleased to have one of our uh, plenary speakers for that conference. Um, call in Mary Abajay, the president and founder of Careerstone Group, and she's going to talk a, a little bit about her her newest book, Managing Up, and her presentation. So we have a lot to get to. I uh, just want to remind everybody that Fed Talk is brought to you by Federal Long-Term Care Partners. Long-Term Care Partners administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program. So for more information, please go to ltcfeds.com. That's www.ltcfeds.com. So, Dexter, let me start with you. I know we're going to be talking uh a lot about you know the the training initiatives and the outreach that your office um, does, and and later we're going to talk about this important training conference. But I always think this is a great show um, for you to just take a little bit of time and and you know educate our listeners a little bit about you know generally speaking the EOC's mission and what it specifically does for you know the federal employee group. Okay. Thanks, Tony. It's always great to be back and have this annual opportunity to talk to your listeners. So we really appreciate this platform. So for those who are not familiar with the EEOC, we're our, we are an independent federal agency. It's a bipartisan commission with five commissioners. The president uh, nominates uh, each of the commissioners. They have to be Senate confirmed. They work on five-year staggered terms. So every year, one commissioner's uh, term expires. And so at any time, the commission's composition has to be three members. It cannot be more than three members of the president's party. Two members have to be outside of the political party, making it somewhat of a bipartisan commission. So right now we are with three commissioners. So that means we have enough to have a form. Uh, We don't have uh, our new appointees. They're still waiting confirmation. The commission itself makes the determinations on policy directions for the organization. The president also appoints one of the commissioners to be the chair of the of the organization, and that individual manages the day-to-day operations. So currently our chair is, our acting chair is Victoria Lipnick. She's a long-term uh, commissioner. She's been with the commission, I think, almost eight years now, a little bit less than eight years. She's a uh, She's a strong federal advocate. She has a great federal background. She's been in uh, political positions. She's been on the Hill. At one point, she was uh, she worked at the Postal Service, def- uh, defending cases for the Postal Service. So she knows federal sector EEO in ways that other commissioners have not. So we've been very fortunate to have her as our leader. So the commission is is a very dispersed organization. We have 53 field offices throughout the country. So for folks who believe they've been the victim of employment discrimination because of the, the basis that we protect, such as race, if you believe you've been treated differently because of your race, your color, your gender, your, 
your national origin, your religion, your disability because of genetic information. There's some statutory protections that gives EEOC the ability to look into those uh, practices at an organization to make sure people are not disadvantaged because of those arbitrary uh, affiliations that they may have. And so we have 53 offices throughout the country. So if a person works and they believe that their employer is treating them different or denying them employment opportunity because of one of those bases, they can come to one of our field offices and initiate a process. And so we have uh, intake folks, investigators, mediators in the field, and we'll look into a charge of discrimination. But if if we believe that there's discrimination, we'll work with the company to try to bring about some conciliation. But if we don't, then we have the ability to sue companies in federal courts. So sometimes you'll see EEOC uh, in the news, and it'll be based on litigation, EEOC versus FedEx or EEOC versus Walmart. And those are the cases we decide in the public interest we need to do something to take a corrective action against an employer. But one of the things you will not see EEOC in terms of our litigation strategy, you won't see EEOC versus a federal agency. You won't see EEOC versus Homeland Security or EEOC versus NASA. And that's because the federal government has a different role in terms of what we do in federal sector EEO. Uh, There's been this vision even before EEOC was founded in 1965 that the federal government should be a place of model employment where people have fair and equal opportunity. And so the federal government has always been a place where we have a higher expectation. So at EEOC, we have an office dedicated to federal employment. It's called the Office of Federal Operations. And what we do is we work with federal agencies to try to find ways to not only remedy discrimination, but hopefully prevent it from happening in the first instance. So that's kind of a broad overview, Tony. You know, I've, I've been doing this show for years with Dexter, and I've known Dexter for a long time. I didn't think he was going to let me ask a question <laughs> at all, at all there. But that was, that was a very smooth and great, great introduction. Um, so yeah, the, the federal government's the, the model employer. Um, that doesn't mean it's perfect by, right. by any means. Um, and that's a little bit, um, you know, what, you know, I like you guys probably you might disagree with me, but I like to think of almost your your office, the Office of Federal Operations, it's kind of like the quote, you know, r- you know, overseer and regulator um, for how the federal government, the individual agencies um, implement, you know, all of their very important um, EEO um, programs. So if you could, you know, just a little bit, just talk about. Uh, that general oversight that mm-hmm. you provide guidance and sort of you know training and, and outreach that you sure. do to all the all the federal all the federal agencies so every every agency just to let our listeners know you know they have their own eeo office office and program but there's a director um, but there are a lot of these compliance issues that you all oversee, right? Right. So the way that we really try to inculcate the federal government into EEO is that each agency, so if you're a federal employee, you have an internal EEO office that's required by regulation, and they're supposed to do some of the same things we do at EEOC, and we provide them oversight. So we have a complaint process for the federal employee that's a little different than our litigation, so each agency will have a process for doing ADR, alternate dispute resolution. We call it counseling. And then if that doesn't resolve the issue, then they can file a formal complaint of discrimination. And then the agency is supposed to look into the issue, do an investigation, present that to the employee so the employee can decide whether or not they want to seek uh, further redress from EEOC. So the process is really set up for let's organizations try to resolve things internally before needing EEOC's intervention. And, but if you need EEOC's intervention, we have a hearings program where we have administrative judges throughout the country that can come to the facilities and hold hearings on issues of discrimination. And then if either party's dissatisfied with the hearing or a decision that comes out of the process, they can appeal to the office that Tim and I work for, the Office of Federal Operation. And so we do that on the enforcement side. On the preventative side, we do work with agencies in other ways. So we have agencies submit information to us every year on their data, their workforce data, their complaints data, hopefully to find trends and issues so that we can find proactive means of addressing it. So within that portion of the office where Tim and I work, 
we actually, you know, look at the data. We have a data unit. We call it a reports and evaluation. They collect the data. They do trend spotting. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of their research later on. And and those are how, I mean, that's how it's with our social scientists. So we have a bunch of social scientists, psychologists, sociologists. And then Tim's division, which is the division we're highlighting today, is our training and outreach division. So each agency may have issues. And one of the issues we're going to really dive into this morning, hopefully, is harassment. So right. we'll have a curriculum based on that. And then we have a division that does does relationship management with agencies. So they have assigned agencies. They interface with and provide information and guidance. And then we have a separate division that does our regulatory and policy work. So we really try to give the federal government as much information so they can make informed decisions that that are more preventative than on the remedy side of the complaint process. Right. Um, Two things I want to emphasize before we take our first break. you know, n- number one is, you know, the the kind of, you know, the resolution aspect, you know, the education of trying to resolve these complaints before mm-hmm. they become, quote, federal cases, you know, is really wonderful um, in the federal government. I've thought about that a lot in my career as, as a lawyer. Um, and, you know, I think part of that is the biggest difference between complaints in the federal sector and the private sector is the employee who's suing you in the federal sector is usually still your employee. That's not the same in the private sector. Right. So there is, and, and that's a disruptive process to mm-hmm. the work environment. It's 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 you know very disruptive um, and adversarial. Um, you know, so you know there is a greater you know need and desire to perhaps resolve these complaints. Yeah. And you talked about that, yeah. you know, counseling, mediation, you know, alternate you know dispute resolution where we're not really focused so much about you know, what you can prove, what happened wrong, and more about, you know, how can we come together to, to reach a, you know, to, to reach a resolution. The other thing I want to mention that was always an eye opener to me is that data that you all collect is very important. I'll never forget, I don't know, four or five years ago, I was teaching a course on something. Um, and you always hear about how many frequent filers there right, are in right. the federal government. You know, and the No Fear Act, you know, required the reporting of all this stuff. And you guys collected the data. And at a particular agency I was speaking at, I wanted to get this data. And I was blown away. Yeah. You know, how few there actually were. Right. And I'm true. somebody, you know, that has spent a career in yeah. this, you know, that when you actually go look at the data, you know, it didn't match up to what the perception was out there. So, you know, so sometimes, you know, you know, that's very important. So you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. I'm here with Dexter Brooks from the EOC's Office of Federal Operations, and we've been talking about the important mission and services of the EOC. We need to stop here for a word from our sponsor. When we return, we're going to shift the focus, as Dexter mentioned, uh, talk a little bit about this issue of harassment, you know, how the Me Too movement, you know, that we see out there every day, how that's, you know, impacting the federal workforce. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. I'm Tony Vernetti, and I'm talking with Dexter Brooks from the EEOC's Office of Federal Operations. And we're talking about EEOC's mission within the the federal government and workforce. So as I mentioned before our break, I want to shift our focus to talk a little bit about this issue of harassment in the federal workplace. I mean, you can't turn, you know... you can't turn the TV on, turn the radio on these days, you know, and hear something about, you know, this issue of harassment um, in our society. And I really we're believe we're at, you know, kind of a crossroads. Um, we're, you know, we're seeing so much on it, you know, Me Too movement that we're being forced to deal with it, you know, and, you know, the federal government, you know, by and large is like a, one of the largest employers um, I would presume that they're no different um, right. in having in having to deal with this issue. Um, you know, so sort of what can you tell us about, 
you know, what's going on in the federal government about this issue and what the EEOC, um, you know, what guidance are they putting out and, you know, how are you, how are you all involved in it? Yeah, it is an issue that's kind of universal. So some of the things that we're doing in the federal sector, we're doing across all segments of EEOC, private sector, state and local. Uh, One of the things that uh, we have recognized probably before, you know, October of last year when the Harvey Weinstein story broke and the Me Too movement took hold, you know, a couple of years prior to that, we had uh, commissioned a select task force on the study of harassment because as we were doing our strategic plan at the EEOC, we recognized how harassment was becoming the most dominant issue brought up in our cases in all segments, private sector, federal sector. And so what we wanted to do is try to find, you know, what's at the root cause of this. So we brought in a And we team. should point out, we're not just talking about sexual harassment, which is what everybody sexual. thinks about. Right. Um, you know, it, you know, there are all the protected classifications, yeah. you know, your race, gender, disability, age, religion, right. you know, all the, and it could be harassment based upon any of those, like race or, you, right. you know. Harass. So any of the basis where we have sexual authority, it can be harassment on that basis. Sexual harassment has been highlighted because of the Harvey Weinstein, the Bill Cosby stories that's out there, and it's really caught the attention. But we had recognized harassment, whether it be sexual or gender-based or is it based on disability, was pervasive in our complaint inventory. So we wanted to address it. So we brought in a team of academic experts, attorneys throughout the country, and we came up with some recommendations. And so one of the things we were well positioned with some strategies when the Me Too movement came out. So it kind of really reemphasized some things that we already knew that was going on that really needed to, you know, become get its light of day. And then last year when everything broke and Me Too took off, it was great, but it was great in the sense not that harassment's out there. It's great that it's not hidden anymore. So right. strategies now, we really are looking at how do we get this issue out there. And the federal government, like you said, the majority of our harassment cases, so we have about, in the federal government, I don't want people to think it's overrun. We have about 3 million federal employees. We get about 15,000 complaints. So less than 1% of the federal government files a complaint in a given year. But of those 15,000 complaints, it used to be harassment was about one-third of the inventory. So as of last year, it's about half the inventory of our cases have an allegation of mm-hmm. harassment. Now, in that inventory, you think- the vast majority of them are non-sexual. There's a small percentage that are sexual. Right. But, but harassment as an issue is just really pervasive at this point in terms of what people perceive to be the unfairness they're experiencing in the workplace. Right. Right. I mean, it can just be an unpleasant work environment and they, and they, and they view that, you know, as as harassment, yeah. you know, often and and file the complaints. But do you do you think there's more of an uptick because of kind of the the media spotlight that's been put on it, that there's you know, that there's you feel like you can come out from the shadows, so to speak, and, and you know, and, and, and make these claims? Yeah. So yeah, I think because of the media spotlight, and we've and, and we've had done we've had done surveys, and had others have done surveys over the years where there's a strong belief that there's underreporting of harassment because of the people didn't want to actually put those issues out there for fear of retaliation or may hinder their career. But I think with the attention that the Me Too movement has brought to the issue, you know, folks have come out. In our first year of really tracking the increase, I think we've seen about a 20% increase from 2016 to 2017 in the number of harassment allegations raised in our complaint inventory. So, and then we'll track it again for this year because this year was even probably more in terms of folks being aware of their rights and opportunities to challenge this this behavior in a way in which that uh, is meaningful. So yeah, we did see an uptick uh, the first year, about 20%. We'll probably see something similar uh, this year in terms of the, the, the data. Uh, like I said before, uh, one of the things that we did in advance of this is we, we really have been pushing federal agencies to have anti-harassment programs that are, we have an EEO program that requires uh, training, outreach, preventative, also responsiveness in terms of filing complaints and things like that. But we've also required federal agencies to have a standalone anti-harassment program. So to look at misconduct quickly. So if someone believes they're the victim of discrimination, they don't have to go through the whole long complaint process before there's a determination whether or not harassment has happened. The anti-harassment program is designed to look at the issue really quickly, decide if there's some some uh, actions that need to be taken, 
and and resolve those quickly. And it's not, and it's a separate process. So we, from 2014 to 2016, we did an analysis of each federal agency's anti-harassment program, gave them feedback on how to improve it so that there'll be more position to handle these charges. Mm -hmm. So we'll have... We'll have our harassment data based on complaints, but in the future we'll have a separate tracking system just to when folks believe there's harassment, they looked at it as a form of misconduct versus a form of discrimination, and we'll have more data to help agencies analyze what's going on in their workplaces. And more data on whether anything's been substantiated? Yes. What do you suggest to play devil's advocate a little bit? I don't want to put you too much on the spot, you know, but I deal a lot with federal managers, you know, who are accused of quote harassment, mm-hmm. you know, and a lot of it, you know, is, you know, they're simply trying to hold employees accountable and trying to get a day's work for a day's pay. Yeah. And, you know, they perceive that as harassment. Right. You know, well, you know, like I get a lot of calls from employees to say I'm being harassed. Yeah. You know, well, harassed how? Yeah. You know, you know, how do you sort of respond to managers, you know, that have concerns like that, they feel like they are judged guilty until they can prove themselves innocent. Right. And I know what the, uh, what's going on now, folks are concerned that there's an over-reporting, potential over-reporting. And one of the things I think we have in our strategic plans for the next year or so is to really try to do an education campaign, not for just managers, but for employees. Harassment's become a common term. Like we used to say, let's Xerox something. It just became the synonym for uh, copying. Now you say harassment for anything that's bad in the workplace. Right. But harassment is a legal term that's that really means behavior has risen to a certain level that's that is unlawful. Right. So it can't be and trivial because of petty. a protected classification. Right, because of a, so it can't be I just came like to you work. can harass yeah. you because you don't like my blue shirt here. Right. And that's not <laughs> illegal. So it's like we have to do an education campaign with the general workforce and the general public about what is actionable harassment. But we also want to balance that with employees to say, even if something's subtle, you want to look at some incivility and things like that because it can lead to harassment. So it's this delicate balance. Everything's not harassment, but we should be mindful when we see certain types of behavior, it can lead to bad outcomes. And that's a part of the preventative. So we're trying to do both. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we've put out last year, we developed a training course for federal agencies and private employers on uh, looking at those issues. We call it respectful workplace training. Mm-hmm. And that's for employees, for managers leading for respect in terms of uh, looking at the things that lead to ultimate bad and outcomes I, and that may go beyond like you know all right because you know, i'll get this question too well it's so harassment in legal terms mm-hmm. you know since there's three lawyers in a room you know yeah. is it you know pervasive is it severe and pervasive and that's a standard it's way up here yeah you know right but you know as the model employer you know you know we need to have a standard that's respectful that's down here right. and maybe we don't need to you know, tie it to a protected classification because those are all. Yeah. And that's why we want those anti-harassment programs in place to actually look at the conduct, even though it may not be unlawful. If it's unlawful, it can come in the complaint process. We can go through that and make that determination or remedy. But if it's things that's just hindering the work environment, because believe it or not, bad conduct, kills productivity. So right. organizationally, it's a bad right. thing to have. So using your anti-harassment program, trying to get it uh, bad behavior before it becomes pervasive is in the best interest of all organizations. So that's why we're really pushing that. I mean, we've done other research to support why it's important for organizations to address conduct because it, it, it affects bottom line. Uh, we put out a, a mini report, a last quarter. We have a, on our website, we have this uh, digest of EEO laws and it, and it summarizes all our cases, but in the end, we'll do a scholarly article about a topic. And so, one of the things we put out for federal agencies is, you know, some of the preventative steps that we've learned from doing research analysis on criminal prevention, crime prevention, mm-hmm. like broken window theory of policing. Like some police departments go out to the community, they build networks to help other people know that. If you see like broken windows or litter everywhere, that's just a precursor for more serious crime. Right. So in the harassment scenario, if you see incivility, you see 
much conflict is going unresolved and unchecked, it can lead to it's worse leading, outcomes. It's so leading we, to that. It's yeah. leading to it. So we're giving, we're trying to give agencies a bunch of tools to right. use some some preventative steps so that we won't get to the pervasive right. harassment that we see coming out of the Harvey I, Weinstein, Bill Cosby yeah, type of situations. Yeah, you know, and from, from where I sit, you know, seeing both sides of it, typically, you know, I, I call it like sometimes it's an over bureaucratic response, mm-hmm. you know, to a serious issue, and they want to just, you know, all right. The claim harassment has come in. We're moving the manager, detailing we're going to come in and we're going to, you know, investigate it. You know, and it's like an easy to administer rule, right? Yeah. If you think back, easy to administer rules kind of can ignore, you know, all these relevant factors, yeah. you know, that I think you're talking about. I like to call it, you know, the common sense approach because sometimes we can get too caught up in explaining to managers, you know, well, here's the legal definition. You know, but we're trying to conduct a civil workforce. Here. Yes, right. Because it's it's about productivity, right? It's about productivity. We That's want the bottom we want line. government to be more like the private sector type, more to productivity. But sometimes when we you know, we're dealing with some of these difficult you know issues, you know that that sometimes we get lost in how we in how we you know communicate yeah. that. So I mean, we're going to be you know we're still exploring different approaches. I mean, things that like you said, the over bureaucratic. You move this person, you move. They never speak again. That's not a realistic work environment. Once the situation is risen, this neat risen, and it's been shown that there's been some misconduct. We need to have more conversations about how this affects the workplace now and moving forward so that folks understand how behaviors need to change, what can they expect in the future. So we're looking for different approaches from federal agents, trying to give them some different strategies for preventing and creating a culture that we think is appropriate for the productivity that the federal government needs. So so you'll see a lot of that coming from the EEOC over the next uh, couple of years. Good. That's great. So we're going to have to stop here for our second break. When we come back, we're gonna let we're gonna bring Tim on and let him play in our, our reindeer games with us. He's gonna talk <laughs> specifically fun. about the upcoming leadership training conference for EEO leaders in the federal government. Now this a word from our sponsor. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal manager, you deal with a lot of information. Here's a tip on breaking through the noise. Join the Federal Managers Association to have a voice on Capitol Hill. And to get filtered news and information specific to managing your workforce, join the 50,000 other federal managers who already subscribe and read the free weekly e-report, fedmanager.com. I'm Todd Wells, Executive Director of the Federal Managers Association, and I approve this message. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. I'm Tony Vernetti, and I've been speaking with Dexter Brooks from the EEOC about their training and outreach they provide to federal agencies. Um, now I'm going to like to welcome to the show again, Tim Bladick from the Training and Outreach Division at the EEOC to talk about their upcoming Executive Leadership Training Conference, which is designed specifically for the EEO leaders in the federal government that they're respective agencies. Tim, uh, welcome again to the show. Mm-hmm. Nice to um, give us a little background, you know, about this sort of training, you know, conference, you know, what's the, the purpose of it, you know, and why is it, you know, there's so much training out there, you know, that's offered to management kind of training. Um, you know, why is this a little bit different and, you know, where did the idea come from? Sure. So the, the conference really, uh, it's been in place some seven years now. And it really came about because we were getting requests from EEO directors, uh, senior EEO leaders, uh, for something that would be more specific to their needs than what we've been doing, per se, uh, in terms of just talking about EEO matters at, say, our Excel conference, which we hold every year. Right. So they they made requests to say, you know, what, what do you have for us that will help us run our programs? What do you have that will that will make us uh, effective in our work? And so... Uh, with leadership of Carlton Haddon, who's the OFO's director, uh, we put together uh, leadership training uh, that, to meet their needs, the kind of things where they learn about management skills and professional development uh, and even personal growth skills, the kind of things that every leader needs. But 
specifically sort of tailored to the EEO world. Uh, so uh, that's that's how it came about, and that's what, what the purpose is, really. It's a little different in, in that it's not just uh, subject matter related in EEO. This is not that those things don't come up a little bit, but the conference is really uh, targeted at leadership skills, giving the leaders what they need to do their jobs in the EEO world. And specific to what EEO leaders, you know, what they struggle with, you know, and, and not, you know, which might be a little bit different than, you know, say, you know, other managers in other agencies. So not only are, is it not substantively based in EEO law, um, but it's also, you know, that we bring them all together and they're dealing with, you know, the kind of, you know, the obstacles and barriers, you know, that they have to deal with as, you know, EEO directors in these, you know, federal agencies. Right. And it's, it's actually something that's sort of uh, special in the sense that you bring them all together and they have someone to talk to about their issues that they can relate to and, and you know, working together and talking to each other, networking. Actually, some very uh, good things come out of that just from speaking to their peers about what uh, – you know, what's going on and what the challenges are that they're facing. So this year, the conference is when? It's October 29 through 31, um, and on, on Halloween. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely have candy for you there, right? right. And I think it ends in time so everybody can go home and trick-or-treat. Yeah. So, um, um, and it's it, in Charlottesville, Virginia, as you mentioned earlier, the home of UVA. And actually, it's at the Boar's Head Resort and um, UVA Educational Campus, uh, they really have a connection there together, and so it's a it's a great location uh, to bring together a conference such as this. It's in a, a really a beautiful uh, location, out a wooded location, and it sort of helps us uh, put together a program that uh, in that kind of a setting. So give us a, just a real quick overview of the training schedule. It, it's three days, right? Right. It starts on Monday. Uh, actually, it starts on Monday afternoon, some like one thirty or so. And uh, we have an opening workshop on leadership, power, and politics. And that's uh, Vanessa Phipps is going to be giving that presentation. It's really about political savvy. Um, and I won't go much into about that now, but just really those kind of skills that, uh, that every leader needs, uh, politics with a small p, and, and to, to navigate their program. And then for the rest of the afternoon, we're going to have uh, a peer-to-peer coaching sessions, and that's... Uh, a session I mentioned earlier, the networking possibilities and the, the ways that uh, attendees can help each other. And this is one way that, that we think that will really be possible. Before the uh, conference, uh, all the attendees will be take an assessment uh, on certain leadership issues, leadership skills. And then we're going to, based on that assessment, we'll break up the attendees to have them uh, coach each other, talk to each other uh, about uh, certain strengths and weaknesses, uh, encourage each other, uh, give each other tips, that sort of thing. And then the, the start was a good segue. Um, we've got um, one of our plenary speakers, but to start the second day, uh, Mary Abijay, the, the president and founder of CareerStone Groups, uh, going to be going to join us to talk about her her recent book, Managing Up. And we're fortunate enough to have her this morning call in uh, to tell us about you know her book and and what her presentation is going to be about. Mary, good morning. Good morning, Tony, Dexter, and Tim. How are you guys? Doing great. How are you doing? Hey, Thanks. It, it's Friday. I'm doing pretty well. Ah, I love it. I love it. So um, I, I first saw, um, we had Mary speak for us one time before, um, and she's absolutely fabulous um, for any of our listeners out there who haven't seen her speak. Um, but uh, if you remember, we had you talking about generational differences. Um, yeah, and I promptly went back to the office and yelled at all my millennials. <laughs> <laughs> so I say I was effective. Great. <laughs> it's just something that I do normally. So, so it wasn't anything that that you said or or, or didn't say. Um, so tell us a little bit about your um, your new book. You're managing up. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So managing up. So managing up. Well, you know, as you know, there's. You know, a gazillion and one books on managing down. Uh, and so I thought after my 20 years of experience working with teams and groups that, you know, I think everyone in, in, in the social system of work has responsibility for making the relationships work. So I thought, why don't we also help people who have to manage up? In other words, how do we help people develop really great, robust relationships with their bosses as well? Because that relationship matters a lot. And if we can help uh, on both sides of the equation, because we help the bosses develop relationships with their staff, why don't help the staff learn more about 
working well with the bosses. So we can empower people to take a little bit more control of their career, a little bit more control of their workplace experience, and really uh, focus on creating those positive relationships. And um, help me out here. So it's not, it sounds like it's something that I've tried to counsel um, employees on that are dealing with difficult work situations. Um, And I probably, I don't articulate it very well, but it's not a one size fit all, right? It really depends upon the particular work dynamics, the boss in question. That's right. And so what happens oftentimes in the workplace is that we, you know, we all have preferences, right? We all have uh, workplace styles and priorities and personalities and pet peeves. And what happens when we have a boss that's really well aligned to us, that's very similar to us, it's really easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? But when our boss is really different than us or has a different way of, of, of approaching work, what happens to the human brain is we then go into this cloud of negativity, like, well, my boss should do this and my boss should do that. And well, that may or may not be true, it's still your responsibility to really t- uh, hold up your end of the relationship. So it's about understanding how you and your boss are the same, how you are different, and trying to figure out ways that you can navigate or interact with him or her in a way that's more productive for you, for them, and for the organization. It's not about sucking up. It's not about being a sycophant. It's about developing that relational that relationship intelligence so that you can really be flexible to adapt to different personalities in the workplace so that you can, your boss can, and the organization can be successful. So how do you, you know, how do you counsel or sort of advise, you know, the, the employee or, or person who's in a situation, you know, that just perceives it all, it, it's just unfair, you know, it shouldn't be happening this way, you know, they're doing something wrong, like a, like a right or wrong kind of approach, yep. or, you know, somebody, you know, you know, somebody else is getting away with this, or, or perceived advantage or disadvantage, you know, how do you get them to kind of think outside of those kind of very, you know, narrow, you know, narrow way of looking at things? Yeah, you know, and you put your finger right on the problem. You know, we get caught in my boss should, my boss needs to, this isn't right. And while you get to be right in that situation, the minute you just complain about that situation, you turn yourself into a career victim. And we're not talking about really egregious behaviors. We're talking about people who just operate differently than us. So what we try and do is try to get people to understand the difference between intent and impact. We get people to understand we all have different ways of working. And the end of the day, you get to choose. You get to choose whether or not you are going to change how you interact with your boss because we can't change other people. We can only change how we interact in a situation. So you can either choose to be adaptive and strategic in how you interact, or you can choose to be a victim, or you can choose to find another opportunity. So we help people by showing that there's two sides to every behavior, right? That there's that the 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 intention that they assume is behind the action isn't always there. And we teach people to take responsibility and to think outside the box. It's not easy, but once we show them how to do it, it's amazing when you see that light bulb going off. Like, for example, the person that says, well, my boss never shares information. She doesn't tell me anything. I don't know. I don't know what she wants. And then you say, well, have you uh, considered the fact that she might be an introvert and you need to go ask her? And they look at me and they're like, well, no. And I said, well, what happens when you go make the request for information? And they're like, oh, it's never occurred to me. So you help people take these simple, pragmatic steps so they can really get what they need at work so the organization can be successful and they can be successful. Right. I mean, two points on that. Number one, it's very similar. I get a lot of people, you know, who who I hear complaining, you know, it's not my fault, right? You know, whatever happened, it's not my fault. And, and And I'll say, you're right. You know, it's not your fault. But it's your responsibility to fix it. Yeah. Um, you yes. know, and sometimes you I know agree. it's hard for them to, to see through to see through this. Um, and I'm just sort of you know reading because because I, I love this part here because I've always had trouble articulating this. You know, it's it, you know it's a valuable soft skill. You know, in your career, and it's not about sucking up or round nosing. And I would I deal with people much like this audience that you're going to be presenting to deals with yep. people who want to file complaints. They're they're, they're in your yep. office because they want to file a complaint. And you know, as a lawyer, I've spent a career advising people filing a complaint. Litigation should always be the last resort. 
you know, and I would say, look, there's there's many ways to skin a cat. I probably don't give the right, the best analogies, you know, and I would say it's not about kissing up, you know, but it's about, I you know, I use the word manipulation. It's about manipulating the relationship somehow to your benefit. If, you're, if your particular boss is this way, you know, then maybe you need to learn how to, you know, manage a situation, you know, or, or, or behave, you know, a different way. So that you can, you know, accomplish your goal, and it's not so much about right or wrong, you know. And, and, and that's exactly right. You know, it, you're exactly right. I use the word being strategic, being adaptive, right. strategic, so figuring out really what your boss needs, how they need it, their manner, and always being in choice of what you want to do. Like no one's going to make you do anything unethical. You shouldn't do anything like that. But if your boss likes to have really detailed written reports and you think they're ri- ridiculous, well, then you have a choice. You can either give your boss what they need or you cannot give them what you need and ruin your career. So it really is about being strategic and understanding the workplace is a social system. And you're going to have to work with a lot of different people. And the more flexible you can be about really being able to figure out how people tick and what's important to them and stop and don't consider everything a battle. And what I'm hoping for the EOC is this will give them some tools to diffuse differences and conflicts before they come become really big conflicts. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, I, I see it in two folds, guys. I mean, I, I see it, number one, as, as, you know, how can they, you know, sort of s- spread this word, you know, to potentially complainants, you know, how they would interact with their bosses. And then how yeah. am I, the EEO director, going to utilize, you know, this, quote, soft skill in dealing with my stakeholders? Because yeah. that's a different right. issue. Yeah, and Mary, this is Dexter. So in terms of hey, the Dexter. audience at this conference it's going to be valuable because folks who are leading these programs they have to manage the different political leadership that changes every right. two yes, years do. and these skill sets are going to be great and just just sh- shamelessly i'm a big fan of mary i've attended a few of her sessions Aww. and i marked my career before mary abajay then hey, after hey, and then hey, it, 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 hey i'm <laughs> the one that brought her to your doorstep okay? right that's true, that's true. <laughs> so so if folks want to know if the conference is worth it i would say just actually having a chance to be in the presence because mary brings such positive energy but but more importantly you know very useful information yeah, and, you. And, you know my head is really big now. You better make a big deal right, for me together. Right. <laughs> <laughs> she promised me a two dollar bill. <laughs> the conference, but you know these, you know the EEO leaders. You're right; they're dealing. You know, particularly we're still in a relatively new administration. Mm-hmm. There are new. There's anxiety about new initiatives, new priorities, and things like that. And you know, how do you get out in front of that and be, you know, be a leader for your organization to make sure you have a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. And it may not be the way you did it under the last leadership group. There may be a different way to do it. You may, you know, strategic, you know, I I used, you know, think of it from a business perspective, how you're going to, you know, sort of sell yourself and sell this idea. How are you going to get to put it in terms of business, get the sale. That's right. How you can get somebody to yeah, buy you're right. into what you're doing. And Mary, this this is Tim. Uh, I just want to say that I re- what I really love about this is that it brings together a lot of the things that, that uh, managers need. It crosses those boundaries. It's always in like one category, category or another. It, it kind of blends it all together. And it it reminds me of things, you know, even that I started talking about my daughter uh, when she's in school. you got to learn your teacher. Well, this is kind of a, a big, yep. you know, a, a larger, right. a larger uh, part of that. Right, that's good. Right. You can, it can be, you know. And the other thing I think managers will get out of this is like I want them all to reflect of, of reflect on like how easy am I making it for my team to manage up to me, you know? Because hopefully it will go the other way, and I'm like, oh, you know, I guess I've never told my team here's how I like things. So I'm hoping managers can use this in, in both up and down and across. Right, right, right. So Mary, we're gonna we're gonna let you go. Thanks so much for for taking some time this morning, and um, you can take the rest of the day off. Enjoy your Friday. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to seeing you guys in Charlottesville. Yeah, we'll we see you. We'll see you in October. Uh, we're All right. Gonna, see you there. We're going to stop here for our, for a third break to hear a word from our sponsor, Federal Long-Term Care Partners. When we return, we're going to wrap up today's discussion about the EEOC's training conference. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. We are entering our last segment of the show. Um, so that was a re- really neat um, introduction um, about what Mary's presentation is going to be about managing up. And I think that's going to be um, very valuable. Um, so, Tim, I want to talk about some of the other um, instructions we're going to have. Because one of the things you have tried to do with this conference to make it a little bit more practical mm-hmm. and unique um, is kind of have an, an experience like element right. to it. Last year, um, as you know, you remember, we we were in Gettysburg, and we had a whole day on the battlefield where we had sort of lessons learned through the eyes of the uh, you know of the of the folks who were there at the Gettysburg battle. You know the 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 commanders there and what lessons they learned, and then we're trying to you know apply it to mm-hmm. you know how our you know, managers deal with these issues sort of in today's world um, in the federal government. Uh, we got something similar. We're well, not on a battlefield, but we got something similar. Well, I hope we found a battlefield. Today. Actually, uh, it could become one in the sense that uh, <laughs> this is, actually takes it one one step further than what we did last year at Gettysburg. This is a, it is experiential, but it's experiential into the sense that attendees will actually be physically. Uh, and uh, mentally uh, given a challenge that they're going to work on themselves. And it, it's called uh, Bridging the Gap, Cooperative Group Challenge. And it is really literally bridging a gap. <clears throat> Excuse me. The teams will be uh, divided up and they will be figuring out how to engineer a bridge over a gap. And so they, were, they will work together in their groups. Like an like a actual bridge. An actual bridge. And uh, they'll have a little help uh, with some people there on, on some of the construction. But they'll have to... to with the limited communication, uh, end up working together to bridge that gap from from different groups, and I think it really will uh, challenge people. I think um, there'll be uh, you know creativity and problem solving skills that will be uh, addressed here, and uh, not only that, I think it'll be a whole lot of fun. Yeah, and I think you know it really you know you know as we first looked at this you know together, I think you know we looked at it and just you know it's something that's it's something that's different and new. And just to draw a parallel, I mean, just as a leader, you know, in any organization, you're going to get stuff put on your desk that's different and new, and you're going to have to rally the troops um, to get a plan as mm-hmm. to, you know, as to how you're going to you know, accomplish that. Um, and, you know, they've got a, a bunch of obstacles, I guess, that they throw your way. They do. You I know, think it really helps uh, people w- meet challenges they may not expect and also how to diffuse conflict that may arise because of it. So I... I think it's a really good challenge, right? And and you know, one of the things is how to better communicate, you Absolutely. know, through through the, the life cycle of the project. You know, how to you know overcome problems and obstacles, and how you communicate that or right. deal with frustration doing something that you're not comfortable with, and or come up your... with a product that actually, in this case, has to pass inspection. Right, right, right. So that's going to be something you know neat and interesting, and it's going to be you know done in a very peaceful. Setting down there, <laughs> yeah, yes. down there, and people and be distracted by Bridge. by the peace. I guess right, right. right. It, you know, I mean, I will say, having seen the location, um, you know, it does have kind of that you know retreat feel down there, and it is small enough, I think, for your group. You know that, that you know they'll feel you know very kind of at ease. You know, a good a good learning environment, if you will. Good, good. You know, right. like we're far enough. You're far enough out of the D.C. area where you can kind of shut down. Which is sometimes very hard yeah. for executives to do, decompress, not think about work, and that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get to recharge their intellectual batteries, you know, and and you know what can I learn, you know, and how can I take this back to the office, you know, because these are all super smart people, you know, they got to, you know, where they're at in their agencies, you know. You know, by being go-getters and achievers, mm-hmm. and you I know. think it gives them an opportunity to sort of get away uh, and to do it, get away from the, the day-to-day concerns of the office. Um, although I'm sure they probably will check in a, a bit, but 
it really helps them to do, sort of. Do you give them time to away. do that? We do. We do give them time <laughs> and, to do that. And the Wi-Fi to make it happen. Yes, <laughs> all of that, all of that. So uh, tell us about some of the other uh, um, uh, the other workshops that you have. Planned. Sure. Well, the, what we were describing there sort of takes care of day two, and day three is really a collection of workshops uh, that we developed with. Uh, when we were at the University of Virginia, and so we we tapped into their center for executive development and the faculty there for three separate workshops on that final day. Um, and th- the first one is on innovation leadership. That's the title. And th- that sort of is what you would think it would be. It's all about uh, leadership and innovation, creativity, um, how innovation, you know, works with leaders and, and um, how that should, should happen. Even a toolkit uh, that you'll be given t- that you can take back uh, to your workplace on, on how to be creative and innovative in, in your work. Um, and that that's a, that will be a, a morning workshop, a longer workshop. And in the afternoon, we have two other workshops, the first one on values-based leadership. And that's with the idea that even though there's all these models out there for leadership and all these components that people have identified, that there's, there's one element that people don't talk about a lot but which is absolutely necessary, and that's the values, uh, the core values that people have in their leadership and developing leadership principles. So that's going to be really talking about how uh, how necessary it is and uh, helping people sort of, if they haven't recognized it already, to develop their own leadership principles and their core values in their leadership. And what I think is important about that, you know, is to communicate, you know, th- those values to your employees. Absolutely. You know, it's one thing to, you know, issue them a piece of paper, you know, here is our strategic plan, here are our core values, you know, acknowledge them. But it's it's... You know, or here are the rules, but it's something different when you sit down with your employee mm-hmm. and say, "Look, here are my values. Here's what I think. You know, you should have. That, you know, that you're, you know, you are a contributor to this organization. You know, to to how we perform. You're a valuable piece of it. You know, and if you adhere to these, you know, values, I think together we'll accomplish the goal. And you get buy-in from everybody. And I, I think, you know, employees are are less likely, you know not to do kind of, you know, what's in the organization's best interest when you're communicating that to them. You know, and again, it's just communication. Yeah, and I think that that this is something that people sometimes don't really, even though they may be operating with a set of principles and values, they don't really think about it enough to articulate it to those they're they're managing. So I, I, I think it'll be a really, really valuable session. And finally, actually, after the, the last session for the, for the final day is on high-performance teams and work groups. And uh, as we've already had some emphasis in that collaborative, uh, experiential piece on certainly on collaboration and and uh, working in teams. This really talks more specifically on on strategies for building teamwork and collaboration. Uh, gives some real uh, practical help on team building techniques, uh, how to keep everybody on the same page, and how to have them uh, come to a higher level of commitment for your their team and their agency. And so where can somebody get more information and how can they get signed up? I thought you'd never ask. Uh, (laughs) Online, you can go to eocleadershipconference.com. That's all one word, eocleadershipconference.com. And you'll have all the information there you need to sign up. You could also call 202-331-0004 if you want to talk to somebody about uh, the conference and get more information there. And the rooms you got rooms reserved. There are block of rooms, and yes. they should they should Bl- ask block for that. rooms. You you would ask for the EOC leadership conference, and um, I already have done this, so I know how it works, and it's very okay. simple. Call in, and they'll they'll get you uh, part of the block. So that's that's EEOC leadership dot com, and I've tried this. You can just start typing it into Google, um, and and something will pop up, and the numbers two zero two three three one zero zero. Zero four. So Tony, uh, so one of the things that I think with the leadership conference, since this is our seventh year, it was designed, like Tim said, for EO managers, HR managers, diversity and inclusion managers. But what we found is the way that we've developed the curriculum over the years really focused on leadership and the things you need to be an effective leader. We've seen percentage of our audience be non-EO and HR. Right, and we HR talk, people, and we'll, yeah. We'll talk to them like, why are Lawyers, you here? And yeah. they'll say, we've looked at the agenda, and this agenda really touches right. on core elements and this of can leadership. Be not, not just federal sector as well. This can be state and local or private industry as well if they're involved with EO programs. So that's all the time we have today. Thanks, guys, for a great show. Um, 
I want to give a special thanks to Mary Abijay, who called in a little while ago. Thanks for making herself available. Uh, just a reminder that Fed Talk is brought to you by the attorneys of Shaw, Branson, and Roth. Have a great weekend, everyone. 